Writer Sam Keen works for Science Magazine in Washington, D.C. Mr. Keen's writings have appeared in New Scientist, Air and Space Smithsonian, Slate, The New York Times Magazine, and Mental Floss. And he's appeared on National Public Radio's All Things Considered, as well as On Point. Currently, his book, The Disappearing Spoon and Other True Tales of Madness, Love, and the History of the World, from the Periodic Table of the Elements, is a national bestseller. We found its blend of hardcore science, intriguing facts, human frailties, and downright delicious gossip to be an absolute delight. Thus, we're pleased to be able to say, welcome to Radio Parallax, Sam Keen. Hi, thanks for having me. Well... Mr. Keene, the periodic table sits at the back of chemistry classes and reveals so much about the world of chemistry and physics at one glance, if, if those are in the know. But for, for the people out there who ignored it in school, why is it such a remarkable summary of data? Um, yeah, as you said, you know, everyone kind of remembers it from high <laughs> school, but uh, not everyone remembers it fondly all the time. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a remarkable collection of data because you can look at it at a glance and understand how the elements, how the, the boxes, the individual elements on the boxes will react with each other. And you can tell their properties just by looking at it because elements in the same vertical column on the table have very similar properties. So it's just a clever way of organizing matter and keeping track of it that scientists can use, uh, as you said, to summarize a lot of information very quickly. Well, one fascinating aspect about the tale is that it, it, it does give people general rules that indicate how chemistry will go, but a lot of times in science we learn a lot from the exceptions to those rules, and, and I, you made some note of that in the book about some of the oddities. Uh, uh, you mentioned specifically bismuth, which I took recently uh, with some Pepto-Bismol when I had an upset stomach. It's a medicine, yet it's surrounded on the periodic table by deadly poisons. Yeah, it is. It's probably one of the more missed placed elements on the table. If you look at the little corridor where bismuth sits, it's right next to lead, uh, polonium. It's in the same column, actually, <laughs> as arsenic is, and uh, a little beyond it are, are radon, some other radioactive poisons. But as you said, bismuth itself is completely benign. Uh, it's in Pepto-Bismol, and it's used in other cases to uh, kind of clear the body of poisons. So it's really unusual that this single element, uh, for various reasons, uh, would suddenly appear down in Poisoner's Corridor, down there in the corner. <laughs> well, in researching the various elements, uh, as you did for the book, what, what facts surprise you the most, and, and what do you think uh, comes as the biggest surprise to your audience? The one story that really surprised me was the story of aluminum, just because it's an element that we're all very familiar with, that we all know from day-to-day -day use. But it really had an unusual backstory that uh, I didn't anticipate at first. Um, for a long time in the 1800s, aluminum was actually the most precious metal on Earth. It was worth far more than gold. It was worth far more than silver. And the reason why is that even though aluminum is very common in the Earth's crust, the most common metal, actually, it's always very tightly bonded to something in the crust, usually oxygen. So it's very hard to separate and get pure samples of it. And when scientists started to get pure samples, they were considered sort of miraculous. It's a very light metal, also very strong and attractive, though. Uh, and it became sort of a status symbol to have aluminum. Uh, the French actually used to keep these uh, Fort Knox-like bars of <laughs> aluminum and display them next to their crown jewels. 
and the Emperor Napoleon III uh, actually had a prized set of aluminum cutlery that he reserved for his most favored guests <laughs> at banquets, and the lesser nobility had to eat with gold knives and forks. And even the U.S. got into the game a little. The Washington Monument in Washington, D.C., down in the National Mall, uh, there's a six-inch pyramid of aluminum on the very top of it. And the idea was, in the 1880s when it went up, uh, the U.S. was kind of bragging a little, and we were saying we are such a, an up-and-coming industrial power that we can afford to put aluminum on our public monuments. <laughs> and I really thought that was a great story because, first of all, it was so unexpected, but it also shows how the, uh, the fortunes of the elements rise and fall over time, and what's a very popular element in one time you know, in our day, has become sort of passé, something that's in pop cans and Little League baseball bats. So it was kind of a fun twist for an element that we all thought we knew so well. I noticed, too, that you used the British spelling al- aluminium rather than what we call aluminum, and I guess, I guess it really is aluminium. Uh, everyone else in the world would call it alum- aluminium, yes. Uh, <laughs> but in the U.S., because... Uh, the person who really made aluminum a big metal in the U.S., and in some ways around the world, uh, Charles Hall, he started Alcoa. He preferred the spelling aluminum, uh, partly because it sounded more like platinum, another classy metal. And so he decided he was going to push it as aluminum. And in the U.S. and almost nowhere else, um, it is aluminum. Again, yeah, the rest of the world would say aluminum. (laughs) Well, many, many people contributed to the assembly of, of the periodic table by discovering this or, this or that element. But you cite in particular the Russian Dmitry Mendeleev as the man who saw, I guess, most clearly saw a pattern in the data. And um, how was it that this, this Russian started to bring order from chaos? Well, uh, as you implied, there were a lot of people contributing to it. And there were actually six people six different scientists who came up with the idea of something like the periodic table. And of them, Mendeleev was actually the last one historically. So it's a little unusual that he's the one we associate so closely with the table today. But what Mendeleev was able to do is he was able to incorporate more elements into his table. He was sort of a a specialist with the metals, which are very hard to classify because they look alike, they have very similar properties. Um, But he was able to distinguish between them and put them into their proper place. And what he also did that was remarkable was uh, he looked at some of the places where he couldn't find elements, and he predicted that new elements would be found. And when the new elements were found, and they had the same properties that Mendeleev predicted they would have, people were sort of astounded that someone sitting in his office all the way in Russia was able to see what these elements must be like. So he does deserve a lot of credit for the development of the periodic table, even though technically he wasn't the first one to discover something like the periodic table. Well, most people, I think, have the idea that science is very dispassionate, it's very focused uh, and directed, but, but since the discovery of an element brings a certain amount of fame to the discoverer, uh, it turns out that egos and even national pride got involved in some of these discoveries. Can you tell about some of the cases where scientists, or nations even, fought like kids in the schoolyard over, over who discovered what? <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite chapters in the book talks about a spat between a, some American scientists at the University of California at Berkeley 
and Russian, or at the time, Soviet scientists. Uh, and they were going after elements uh, that were heavier, the heaviest ones at the time, like 103, 104 elements around there. And there was a dispute over who had created which element first. And what they were really fighting about was the chance to name these elements, because the periodic table, you know, is hanging in every single science classroom in the world. And so it's very prestigious to have the right to name the element when you discover it. And things got so bad uh, that this dispute over naming elements drug on for 30-some years. It actually outlasted the Cold War itself. It was a feeder, a new feeder for the Cold War in some ways, and then it outlasted it. And eventually they had to bring in sort of an international tribunal of chemists and have them decide the, the whole thing because they couldn't sort it out among themselves. Um, so, I, it, yeah, as you said, it just goes to show how much passion gets wrapped up in the discovery of elements, especially nowadays, uh, because scientists might spend a decade or more, and at the end of their work, they might have five or six atoms of this element. So it's very hard to tell that they even exist. So there's a lot of room for interpretation, misunderstanding, things like that. You know, I have to jump in, and I do have one bone to pick over the periodic table. Uh, those elements that are okay. above uranium and plutonium, which, which must be manufactured basically in atom smashers, some of these things are found by sifting data, not by actually creating a lump of the stuff. And, and I guess I'm partial to the old charts back when I was in school that went up to 103, and, uh, and that was it. Now, now that we're going beyond that, but these things are just like... Uh, no one can hold a, a piece of it out and say this is dubnium or rutherfordium or whatever. No, you, no one will ever be able to see these elements. You're exactly right about that. Um, and yeah, as you said, they're, they're basically the only place they exist is on computer readouts. Uh, they disintegrate so quickly that no one ever really has evidence, direct evidence of them. We're just looking at indirect evidence. So again, it becomes a question of uh, in what sense do these elements really exist? And, you know, some people uh, that I've talked to say they want to just get rid of the bottom of the periodic table and not include them. And, you know, there's a, there's some argument you could make for that, uh, but I'm sort of partial to them. I, I enjoy them. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm in the other camp, but we can agree to disagree. <laughs> but. But uh, the back of the book, you list a section of, of your some of your five favorite elements, and I, I thought I'd mention one of them in particular, molybdenum, first, first of all, because everybody mispronounces the name. And, and you yep. uncovered a tale about World War I, a conflict fought over it that took place in, of all places, Colorado. Talk tell about that story. Sure. Uh, molybdenum, again, kind of an obscure element, but if you sprinkle molybdenum into steel it actually makes the steel much tougher and much more resistant uh, to heat deformation. And the Germans discovered this during World War I, and they thought, wow, this is great, because they just invented their, uh, their big Bertha guns, and they could only fire them so quickly unless they had molybdenum steel, molly steel, they called it, in which case they could fire off many more rounds per hour. Uh, but unfortunately, they didn't really have much molybdenum around in Germany, and no one else had much molybdenum either. It was kind of a useless element at the time. Uh, but the Germans did find one uh, abandoned, almost bankrupt mine in Colorado, in Bartlett Mountain in Colorado. And so they actually sent agents in to that mine to try to harass the owners of the mine and throw them off the land 
so they could get their hands on this molybdenum metal and ship it back to Germany. And eventually they ended up harassing the owners enough that they got control of the mine. And part of the reason why Germany uh, hung on long enough during World War One was they had this underground channel of molybdenum coming in from the United States. So in some ways it was kind of the most remote battle of World War One, and it took place in the United States. We're speaking with author Sam Keen about his book, The Disappearing Spoon and Other Tales of Madness, Love, and the History of the World from the Periodic Table of the Elements. I, I was quite shocked... Uh, to hear that this, this tale basically repeats itself again in World War II. The Germans were looking for tungsten this time instead of molybdenum, and the Nazis really wanted to use that in weapons, and, and somehow there was a, a free trade of it going on that the Allies didn't step in to do anything about. Right. Uh, tungsten sits right above, or right below molybdenum on the periodic table. Uh, so again, it, it makes steel stronger, tougher. The Germans wanted it for their tanks and other weapons. And this time they had to look to Portugal, to get their tungsten. Uh, Portugal was supposed to be neutral during the war, but they were shipping, again, loads and loads of tungsten through France. And people knew about it across the world. Uh, Winston Churchill knew all about it, and they didn't really do anything to stop it. FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, was a little upset (laughs) with everyone that they weren't jumping in to cut off the tungsten supply, but it just kept going through most of World War II. And Portugal ended up actually making a killing off it. They uh, made a lot of money, and they had in their vaults, in their central banks, of bars and bars of gold with swastikas stamped on them that Germany had actually traded just to get their hands on tungsten. So it was worth more to them than gold was, apparently. Well, your book isn't about German science uh, completely, but there was one, uh, one further <laughs> example, a horrifying example you noted about uh, uh, scientists maybe doing harm, maybe more than anybody else you can think of in the book, Fritz Haber. A man who figured out how to take nitrogen out of our atmosphere, he's able to figure out how to fix that into compounds that we now use as fertilizer, which is, uh, you know, is, is certainly a, uh, a great positive for the world, and feeding, uh, feeding the people of the Earth. Now considered to be a bit of a mixed blessing with all of the runoff and, and causing algal blooms and things. But Fritz Haber really went south when he decided to turn his talents to poison gases in, in, in World War I. You had quite a vivid story about him. Yeah, he uh, was one of the more talented chemists who ever lived, but uh, he was a very fierce German patriot. And um, as I describe in the book, the early attempts at gas warfare uh, were a little more buffoonish than anything. They had shells that would freeze and it didn't work right, and nothing really happened much until Fritz Haber took over. And he's the one who really made uh, gas warfare notorious, especially with the element chlorine and mustard gas and some of those things where he really figured out how uh, to make them poisonous. And um, he was very proud of the work he'd done. Uh, His wife, however, was appalled by the work he had done. And after he came home one night after the first successful gas attack, uh, they had a quarrel and she actually shot herself in their garden over the quarrel and the disagreement they were having about his role in gas warfare. And Haber didn't even actually stay for her funeral. He took off the very next day to oversee more gas attacks at other places. So a very talented man, but a very cold and in some ways cruel man as well. Well, on a lighter note, an element that uh, just about works its way into the title of your book, The Disappearing Spoon, refers to um, one element that's nearly 
liquid at room temperature. It, 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 it turns liquid at, at a little bit above room temperature. And uh, this is something you can do quite a bit of pranks with if you, say, develop a spoon made out of the element gallium. Yes, gallium. Uh, it actually sits right below aluminum on the periodic table. So, again, they have very similar properties. They look a lot alike. Uh, but as you said, the gallium will start to melt. at It's about roughly 84 degrees Fahrenheit. So even in the palm of your hand, gallium will start to soften up, start to melt. And uh, it's sort of a classic nerdy science prank to make a spoon out of <laughs> gallium metal and then to serve it to somebody with hot coffee or tea or something <laughs> like that. And, of course, they think they're just getting an aluminum spoon or something. But they uh, figure out something's up when uh, the gallium spoon disappears on them. So, hence the title of the book. Well, speaking of nerdy science pranks, I was quite amused by the little digression you had about uh, a Boy Scout that got the bright idea he was going to build a nuclear reactor out in the shed. <laughs> and, and he had some success in gathering up nuclear materials and got quite a few people very excited about what he was up to. Uh, yes, he did. David Hahn, who uh, they called him the radioactive Boy Scout. Uh, he was, and he actually did try to build a, a nuclear reactor, a uranium reactor, in his uh, parents' uh, garden shed out in their backyard. This was, this was in suburban Detroit, and his parents uh, just sort of let him go at it. They didn't really know what he was doing, and they thought it was a little unusual. He kept having to throw his clothes away every time he went out there, but. They figured, you know, he knew what he was doing, and he got some uranium. I believe it was from somewhere in the Czech Republic. He just rode away for it. Uh, they sent it to him, and he was writing letters to the U.S. government, posing as a professor and saying, I need help getting a visible amount of uranium together, and they wrote back with pamphlets to help him out. And so this uh, 16, 17-year-old was putting all this together in his, uh, his parents' backyard, basically. Um, and he, he didn't get anything to go or work very well, uh, but he did succeed in, uh, you know, contaminating the entire area and getting <laughs> the uh, federal investigators called in, raiding his, uh, his mother's house looking for stuff. So this was pre, uh, pre-9-11, so things probably would have uh, come down much harder than they did for him. They were a little lenient with him, and he actually joined the Navy at one point. Uh, but even then, they wouldn't let him work on nuclear subs like he wanted to. <laughs> Well, sad to note, women have been shunted aside again and again in, in science, and, and you talk about a few examples of that. One that struck me was a woman, Maria Geppert Meyer. She figured out how the atomic nucleus sort of stacks up together, which was important for chemistry. She couldn't get an academic post, finally got a job at UC San Diego. She wins the Nobel Prize, and you note the local paper headline said, SD Mother <laughs> wins Nobel Prize. <laughs> Yeah, that, that was apparently the most salient thing about her, was that she was a mother uh, to a few children. And as you said, she bounced around the country. Her husband was also a scientist, and he kept getting posts. And sometimes places would uh, sort of indulge her and let her hang around the male faculty and talk science. But oftentimes they wouldn't even do that, and she just could not find a job that would pay her for her work. And then eventually she won a Nobel Prize for it. So she won in the end, I guess. When you talked about aluminum earlier, how it went from being uh, terribly precious to, to very commonplace, almost worthless, what would you say is the most worthless element on the whole periodic table? Oh, the most worthless element. Hmm. 
That is a good question. In previous ages, you could have said that silicon would probably be the most worthless, but not anymore. <laughs> um, I've learned not to offend uh, too many elements because everyone has their favorite, and they call in and get a little upset about it. <laughs> How about the rarest element? Actinium, which is the one that's just so maybe one ounce in the whole crust of the Earth. The whole planet. Yeah, that, that one's safer to answer. Uh, it's astatine, which astatine, is very, yeah. very rare. Yes. Throughout, as you said, throughout the entire world, there's only one ounce of it. So that one is uh, not very useless. <laughs> or, excuse me, not very useful. <laughs> uh, not, not a lot of uh, practical use for that one. Well, you noted in the book even that you had some personal favorites. Tell, talk a bit about those and why you, why you like them. Uh, I would definitely say mercury is my favorite favorite element, just because I sort of have a, a personal history, a personal love of it, and it also has such a rich and long history uh, in science and alchemy. Uh, the Greeks and Romans knew about it, and they associated gods and planets with it. So I definitely think that uh, is my, my favorite element, just the, the combination of so many different things about it. And did you ever get? Did you ever collect elements? I, I tried that in high school for a while. I didn't get. I got maybe less than twenty of them, but it was it was a fun project. Did you ever do that? Well, we did uh, have an unusual collection of mercury, sort of an accidental collection of it in our house because uh, I was a little clumsy as a kid and I was a little sickly. I came down with strep throat something like a dozen times one year, and my mother would put an old-fashioned uh, mercury thermometer beneath my tongue and uh, not infrequently I would drop it and it would break uh, and it would go scattering across the floor. But I was always kind of secretly excited when that happened uh, because I just thought it was the most gorgeous substance ever. And my mother would actually get down on her hands and knees with a toothpick and she would brush the little spheres of mercury together. Uh, and we actually kept them over the years in a little pill jar on a knick-knack shelf in our kitchen, and every once in a while she would get it down and let us play with a little bit of mercury. So we, we, had, a, we had that. We didn't have a, a collection of many other elements, though, but I was plenty satisfied with mercury. I, I actually had a, a blood pressure a, a device break when I was in medical training, so I got, I got quite a score of mercury myself, so I know what you're talking about. It's oh, fun, yeah. <laughs> fun to have a little bottle of it. I guess final question, I uh, just... A little bit off-topic slightly, a lot of people who, who talk about the dangers of nuclear power bemoan how radioactive elements remain dangerous for this or that amount of time. But uh, as you, you point out, that you know, radioactive elements change into something else, whereas there are some other things out there that are poisonous forever. Yeah, there are. There are a fair number of elements on the table uh, that you know, kind of remain poisonous for all time. Uh, whereas the nuclear elements will eventually go away. It is a tough call figuring out what to do uh, with the radioactive waste. Um, you know, burying it underground might work, it might not. Um, I mentioned in the book at one point there was actually two billion years or so ago, there was actually a natural nuclear reactor yes. uh, in Africa that went off, and the nuclear waste there was actually fairly contained for a long period of time. So, you know, you can go back and forth on it either way. I guess just final question and comment. We started talking about bismuth before. It seems like it's a poison. turns out it's a medicine. It also seemed like it was a stable element, but some bright spark figured out that actually it isn't stable. It does break down like uranium. It just does so very, very slowly. It's the last element that will disappear among the elements that will disappear. So right. eventually at the very, very end of the universe, if it lasts that long, uh, we'll have smaller elements around still. 
but a lot of the larger elements will disappear. And among all of the ones that disappear, bismuth will be the last one to disappear because it has a half-life of I don't know how many zero. There were lots and lots <laughs> of zeros, I remember. It breaks down achingly, achingly slowly. But a few scientists in, I believe, France, they got a big enough sample together and they watched it enough to determine that it will eventually break down. So it'll be the last one to go, but someday there will be no more business. The book is The Disappearing Spoon and Other True Tales of Madness, Love, and the History of the World from the Periodic Table of the Elements. We'll be speaking with Sam Keen about this excellent book, which, I, Sam, I can't recommend uh, highly enough, and I thank you for writing it and, and for speaking with us. Oh, well, thank you for having me. 